Now Dinah was the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob. She went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. His soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this young woman as my wife, as a wife. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Then Hamar, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they had heard it, and the men were grieved and very angry, because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to have been done. But Hamar spoke with them, saying, the, son of, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife and make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourselves. So you shall dwell with us and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. Then Shechem said to her, fa then Shechem said to her father and her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me ever so much dowry and gift, and I will give according to what you say to me. But give me the young woman as a wife. But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor his father, and spoke deceitfully, because he had defiled Dinah their sister. And they said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a reproach to us. But on this condition, we will consent to you. If you will become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. But if you will not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. And the, their words pleased Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. So the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. And Hamor and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of their city and spoke with the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For indeed, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us, to be one people. If every male among us is circumcised, as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and every animal of theirs be ours? Only let us consent to them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city heeded Hamor and Shechem his son. Every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. Now it came to pass on the third day that when they were in pain, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. 
And they killed Hamor and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword, and took Nina from Shechem's house, and went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city, because their sister had been defiled. They took their sheep, their oxen, and their donkeys, what was in the city and what was in the field, and all their wealth. All their little ones and their wives they took captive, and they plundered even all that was in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, Should he treat our sister as a harlot? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our reading from the New Testament today is taken from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It is simply classic that when someone is thinking about being a Sunday school teacher for the young people's class, and they're trying to think of what to teach, uh, it immediately jumps to mind, let's teach Genesis. There are all these stories in Genesis that will keep children excited and grab their attention, and then uh, they hit something like chapter 34, and it's like, you know, this is going to be a little tough to explain to the seven-year-old. In fact, from the pulpit, Genesis 34 doesn't get a whole lot of teaching either because it's a pretty rough passage, all things considered, and it's not what the average person is kind of expecting to walk into on the Lord's Day. But it is God's revelation to us, and uh, there are a number of things I notice concerning this rather sordid affair. The first one has to be, we must consider the context of why Moses is telling us this story. There is running through all the writings of Moses, a theme of holiness. And in fact, midweek, while we've been working our way through Leviticus and Numbers, holiness has been an issue that has been uh, brought before us again and again and again. Holiness is extremely important to God. Um, in this manifestation of God's covenant, holiness has a very solid external aspect. If you look at uh, Leviticus, or if you look at Haggai the prophet, uh, if anything holy touches anything unholy, the holy thing becomes unholy. The holiness doesn't change the unholy to be holy, rather unholiness wipes out holiness. And uh, this, this external holiness, it's sacramental, but it's important. 
And there is a call to God's people to be separate from the world in a very tangible sense. Don't go mixing with the world. The, The world is something separate to what God is doing. God is gathering a people to himself that he wants to be separate uh, this whole modern idea of inclusion is the highest good. You won't find it in the writing of Moses at all. The people of God are to be separate, to stand out, to be holy. And if you know that, when you hit this story, it uh, strikes you as amazingly cavalier how Dinah just kind of bounds over to the city and wants to go make friends with the women of the city. Uh, She is put forward effectively as very naive, and she wanders into town hoping to make friends. Uh, The reader who's gotten to chapter 34 of Genesis has to think to himself, what did she think was going to happen? There was a divine emphasis on holiness, and it's not being kept here. Um, this This is naivete. There's a reason why God says, be holy, and Dinah has learned a very painful lesson why that is. Um, They were foreigners in the land. It had been promised to them, of course, this is what I will give you, has been said to Abraham, their father. It's all legitimately theirs from God, but they don't possess it yet, not in any tangible sense. They are strangers and aliens in the land. They are nowhere near as numerous as the peoples of the land. Uh, We haven't been pilgrims or refugees or strangers in a land, most of us. And even those of us who have been strangers in a land haven't been strangers like that. I mean... You may have been in a different land, but you were in the military. That's a little different. Uh, I was there as a missionary briefly, but that's a little different. Uh, the, the Church of God is moving through this area, but they are very much viewed with suspicion by the people of the lands around them. Uh, they're at a very delicate kind of place. And again, that's part of the reason for the call to holiness. Um, They can't be babes in the woods. They can't be naive. They will get hurt. Naivete is actually a moral problem. When you read the the term the simple or the simpleton in scripture, it can be translated as the naive. And there is a moral underpinning that it is immoral to be naive. If you don't know, you need to find out. And here they are acting like babes in the woods. And it's a complex picture that Moses paints for us of the dwellers in the land. He actually uses terms like honorable, at least at one point, but he is clearly showing us that the honorability of the world is not the honorability of God's kingdom. The very best of honorable men out of Christ are going to fall below God's honor. And even though there is perhaps a little uh, tapping of the cap to them and saying, look, they they weren't totally evil, uh, 
Um, Moses does want you to realize at no point do those who are in the land actually have God's people's interest at heart. Shechem doesn't have Dinah's interest at heart before, and really the people of the land don't have their interest after either. The whole discussion is how can we assimilate them and make their wealth our own? Now, again, it's not as sinister as it could be. It's not we're going to kill them in the middle of the night, take their wealth, which is what, you know, Jacob's people do. But it's still, what can they do for us? How can we benefit from them? I don't know that the visible church, if they had heard these negotiations behind closed doors, would have taken to them well, would you? You know, um, you know, Ben Codwell guy is a great guy. I wonder how I can get all his wealth. How can I make uh, how can I make Ben work for me? You know, how can I really bring him on board so that you know he's churning out stuff for me? Would you be comfortable hearing that through the door? You know, no. So at no point did the people in the land have God's people's best in mind. And this all happens because Dinah was naive. She did not adhere to divine holiness. She wandered in like a babe in the woods. And the end result of the story is not positive for Dinah. It's not positive for God's people. Um, things go from bad to worse. At the end of the story, Moses is not telling you, now what Simeon and Levi did is the right thing. In fact, he is really letting you know it was the wrong thing, but why were they there tempted to be bloody murderers? Well, they got stuck in the tar baby of everything that's happening with Dinah. They got pulled in because holiness was disregarded, and so one sin led to another sin, and uh, briefly, there is some profit for the people of God, but it's not legitimate. And at the end, you have Jacob saying, you have put us in a situation that has made life worse for us. The people of the world are going to hear about what you did. Um, I notice he doesn't say anything about his lack of leadership or him leading anybody, and he's the clan head. But... You know, your sins have made the, the church of God to be in a weaker, more vulnerable state. Uh, everything has gone from bad to worse. And one sin of naivety led to abuse of God's people, led to another sin of revenge, led to this, led to that. We are at the end of the story, and the visible church of Christ is harmed. And then the next chapter happens. But that's the, the theme of 34. When we turn to the New Testament, when our Lord Jesus Christ has walked among us and uh, God has in his good graciousness poured out more grace and he has by his own sovereign will, made the covenant more gracious in Christ. There is a little less emphasis on holiness 
in a physical, tangible, kind of Levitical way. When you, when you turn to, say, the Gospel of Mark, in the very first chapter of it, you have a, an account that would cause a, a Jewish reader to just absolutely marvel because it seems something has happened with this doctrine of holiness and things have changed. Uh, we read in Mark 1, verse 40 to 42, these words. Now a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him and saying to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, if you know the Levitical law, you know that if you touch a leper, you become unclean. Well, what goes next is, then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing to be cleansed. And the original reader goes, what? You don't touch a leper. You don't do that. But he says, I am willing to be cleansed. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. So the reader there is seeing now Jesus Christ, the ultimate in God's holiness. I mean, he is the Holy One. He is what holiness is. Uh, the holiness now is such that unholiness flees from it. And so the leprosy isn't there to make him unclean because it's been banished away from him. But this is not carte blanche to be naive. There is still, throughout all scripture, a warning, uh, don't make provision for the flesh. You know, if, if you're not intending on robbing the bank, then don't take the gun and the bulletproof vest with you when you go. Um, there's, a, there's, there's not a change of the idea that you should prepare how to be obedient to God, there is still an emphasis on holiness, although Christ now drives away unholiness. But make no mistake, the apostles themselves exhort us to holiness. And in fact, they even use Levitical statements, they quote them to do that. Peter has already done that. We're in chapter two of First Peter, and we have heard him say this, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, you will notice in the reading for First Peter that I read this morning, he mentioned internal lusts. Well, it's the second time he's mentioned it. He said it here, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, that is Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate holiness in creation, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy which is a direct quote from Leviticus. It's almost as if Peter sees this scripture as continuing to have a relevance for his listener. And in fact, the Apostle Paul has already said in Romans, in Romans 15 and verse 4, 
for whatever things were written before, whatever, for whatever things were written before, were written for our learning, for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. So the Apostle Peter quotes Leviticus, and a million modern evangelicals jump up and say, no, Peter, no, don't quote that, that's Old Testament. And Paul slaps him and says, sit down, shut up, it's all written for you, which is, in fact, the truth. The entire Bible is a Christian book, and what is even in the Mosaic Covenant, though we are not under that covenant, it is still for us, and it has a message for us. Calvin Coolidge was a Orthodox Christian, and he was noted for not talking a lot, which is really very odd for a politician. There was a Lord's Day, and Calvin was in fact a Calvinist, he was going to a Presbyterian church, where Calvin Coolidge's wife was ill, and so she stayed home that day, but he went that Lord's Day to church, and when Silent Cal came back, uh, he didn't say really anything about what happened, and so his wife asked him, Dear, what did the minister preach on? And Coolidge looked up from what he was doing and said, Oh, he preached on sin. And she said, Well, what about it? And Calvin said, Oh, he was against it. True story. Um, holiness requires a doctrine of sin. You can't have an issue of holiness if there's not something to corrupt you. And biblically, that which corrupts is sin. The ceremonial aspect of the Mosaic Covenant is a symbolic representation of what sin does. And if we are talking about sin, if we're talking about holiness, we have to talk about sin. That's not a topic that often gets preached. It, it's a stereotype. I mean, it, it's uh, without saying almost at this point that on the average Lord's Day, if you go into a Christian church, you're not going to hear somebody preach about sin. In fact, they're going to kind of tap dance around it and try to not deal with it at all, to be honest. I mean, that's the spirit of the age. Uh, we hear ministers from the pulpit still say, Jesus Christ saves, and the average person who comes into the service goes, saves me from what? And the minister goes, eh, I'll take it later. Uh, there's something to be saved from. There is uh, hell, there is the world, there is God's condemnation, and that's really the big one. But you are also in desperate need of salvation from sin. From its consequences, from its rulership, from being involved in it, the Bible clearly says Jesus Christ came to make a peculiar people, a holy people, a set-apart people, for himself. And so if anyone is going to preach about being saved, they really kind of need to tell you what you're saved from. And that is, in fact, sin, death, and hell. But it is also true that there are some who continue to preach about sin. 
And when you have that going on, then what happens is they get challenged with the question of why? Why are you preaching about sin? And in fact, usually what comes next is, are you just some sort of control freak who wants to tell me what to do? You're the kind of person who wants to micromanage everybody. You're the kind of person who wants to take the fun out of fundamentalism. What are you, some sort of a puppet master? Why are you talking about sin? I'd like to say that that's totally a straw man kind of thing, and most of the time it is, but it's not always. Uh, if, if you haven't become aware of uh, you know, what's happening out there in the world, there has recently been an expose of uh, Bill Gothard's Basic Youth Conflicts Ministry, a big old documentary designed to really put him in the worst possible light to make what he was doing with his ministry look cult-like. Uh, it has to do with the Duggars. The Duggars were involved in, in Bill Gothard stuff, and so they've, they've, they've had this four-part documentary designed to attack Gothard, and all the way through it, there's an emphasis on Bill Gothard really wanted to tell you what to do right down to the last inch. He wanted to tell you how to keep your hair. He wanted to tell you what kind of music to listen to. He, he wanted to micromanage your life. Growing up, I actually went to those. I attended Gothard's seminar three times. I used to have the big old thick book that they gave out. I don't have it now, but I know where I can go to look at it if I want to. And truth be told, if you look through his stuff... 80% of it is solidly biblical. Gothard was pushing homeschooling before homeschooling was a really big thing. Gothard was emphasizing the doctrine of holiness in a real way. Uh, Gothard was telling people, you know, you, you, before Vody Bauckham, he was saying, you can't send your kids to public school and expect them to come out a believer. Uh, there's some really good stuff there, 80%. But there's that 20% that just doesn't have a thus saith the Lord on it. You look for it, but it's not there. Gothard is telling you how he wants the world to look. And again, 80% of the time, he's got a thus saith the Lord. But those 20% of the time, it's just Bill Gothard likes it this way. And so that's actually a control freak telling you what to do and micromanaging your life. And, you know, if there, is a, if there is a position where you get to stand up in front of people and talk to them for 40 minutes and tell them what to do, the, the chance that people who are kind of control freaky are going to be attracted to that is kind of high, to be honest, right? I mean, that's kind of a no-duh thing. So every now and then, yeah, you got somebody who preaches about sin and holiness, and there's an ulterior motive. It's stop doing stuff I don't want you to do. I don't like it. But the Bible is absolutely filled with admonitions to holiness. The Bible, not just the Old Testament, the New Testament calls us to holiness. Uh, why? Why does the Bible do that? 
And if you are a faithful minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have to preach the whole counsel of God, which means you have to preach these passages. Why, why does God care so much? Because he really does. If you've ever read the Heidelberg Catechism, there's a, a wonderful question at the end of the Ten Commandments where the question says, if no man can actually do this perfectly, why does God have his law preached so strictly? And then there's an answer. Uh, the answer is so that you will realize your need of the Holy Spirit, so you'll cry out to God in dependence more. You know, there's a number of good things there, but even the catechism recognizes uh, God really wants holiness, moral holiness, godliness preached. Why does he want it so much? Is it because God is merely a control freak? Well, the Apostle Peter has, as we have gotten here, been telling us a time or two about moral things. We, as we started the, the chapter in the, the first couple of verses, he said, therefore, laying aside all malice, so, you know, are you hostile to somebody? Do you have somebody that when you see them and they come into the room and you say, look at that so-and-so, how dare they be in this room breathing my air? Uh, that's what Peter says you have to lay aside. Lay aside malice, all deceit, all deceit. Uh, the Bible says when the devil speaks, uh, when, when, the, when the devil lies, he's speaking his own language. Uh, it's best not to speak the language of hell. That's just not something you should pick up. Uh, hypocrisy, get rid of that. Envy and all evil speaking, get rid of all that. As newborn babies, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So Peter at the beginning of this chapter said, when you are a converted person, you become a baby in Christ. You need to get rid of all these things because it's not proper for you. You've been reborn. In fact, 1 Peter is one of the books of the scripture that really emphasizes rebirth. Uh, you're not what you used to be. You have been born again. You're, you're a baby in Christ when you begin. Crave the milk. Get rid of sin. Well, that emphasis on holiness is going to continue as we go through this epistle. And when we hit the reading from 1 Peter today, he uses language which would remind you of Israel of old. Israel is in the land, but they're strangers and pilgrims. It's promised to them, but they don't have it yet. They really have to watch where they're at. They can't afford to be babes in the woods. They have to be careful. This is a situation that calls for prudence. Well, Peter says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. And in fact, the term pilgrim can even be translated refugee. It's got kind of the whole concept in it. I beg you as strangers, pilgrims, sojourners, 
abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. So he pictures us, New Testament Christians, as being in a world that has been promised to us. We are told that when the Lord Christ returns, all of creation will be his kingdom, all of creation will be his promised land. Uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that we can be saved, and we're going to be the only people in the world at that point. Uh, It's going to all belong to us. But that's not where we are now. We are strangers and pilgrims, and we have to be careful because there are enemies that war against our soul. Now, you've heard me say it a number of times, it bears repeating, the word soul does not only mean your spirit. The word spirit means spirit. The word body is only body, but when you take spirit and body and combine them into a wholeness, the biblical term is soul. And so Peter says, everything about your internal spirit, your mind, your heart, your will, your body, the health of your body, the health of your mind, all of that something would really like to do it in. There is an enemy crouching to kill all of that. There is not an inch of you it would not like to devour. And you are strangers and pilgrims in its midst. You need to be careful because it doesn't have your best interest at heart. It might tell you it does, but it doesn't. It is these internal lusts, these temptations to sin, they are crouching at the door. I mean, they're servants of the devil, right? And that's what the devil does, right? He's crouching at the door. He longs to have you. God said it to Cain. Well, that's what's happening. Sin is longing to devour you just like the people of the land were longing to devour the Israelites. They didn't have their best interest at heart. They said they did. It was deceitful. Uh, They were looking to absorb God's people, to destroy God's people's holiness. Well, that's what sin wants to do to you. It does not have your best interest at heart. It will not give you what it says it will give you. Any pleasure you may take from the sin that is crouching at your door, uh, it's brief. Sin actually wants to war against your soul. And so Peter is, is talking to the church, not because he wants to macromanage them. The Holy Spirit speaking through him doesn't want to, quote, macromanage you. The Holy Spirit, when it, it tells you, uh, don't sin, whatever that may be, It is telling you this is at war with you. This will claw you. This will rip you. This will tear down your mind. This will tear down the emotions of your heart. This will make war against your body. There was a Calvin and Hobbes 
cartoon years ago where, if you remember Calvin and Hobbes, Calvin had a snowball and Susie Durkins was coming along and Calvin shouted to the universe, now, if there is a moral imperative that repays evil, uh, you need to know I'm going to hit Susie with the slush ball. So I invite you to stop me if that's going to happen. And then he beams Susie with the slush ball so she gets hit. But then Susie gets up and pounds the tar out of him. And the last panel is Calvin going, why is it that divine justice takes so long to get here? I've lived long enough to watch people I knew that I grew up with who rejected God's will and way, and they thought they were getting away with something. They lived in sin, they rejected God, or, or they were in the church, and then they walked away from the light. And now we're all 50. And I can see how sin has waged war, not only against the spirit, but the body itself. Sin saps moral energy. You become a caricature of yourself. The, the, the scars of your sinful life are very apparent. And how can it be otherwise? So Peter pleads with the church of God, abstain from your fleshly lust because it wars against your soul. God cares about you. Don't do this. And ironically, when he finishes his thought about the matter, he brings evangelism into it. And in verse 12 says, um, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. All those false teachers in the church, what do they tell you is the reason why you should disobey God's law? It doesn't really have to, it can be anything, but a false teacher is standing behind the pulpit. He is preaching a false teaching. He wants you to abandon divine revelation at some point. What is the motivation? Well, I'll lay you nine times out of ten, they're going to say, now, you are separate from the world, and the world is unreachable by you if you're separate. If, if you are holy to God in your conduct and you are resisting sin, if you're living different than the world, you won't be able to evangelize them. And, and evangelism is the, the most important thing. Uh, we have to reach every single person with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if, if you keep obeying God, you're just not going to be able to do that. You meanie, you heart of heart, obedient person. Don't you know that the only way you can win the world is through sin? All right. If we're talking about women in ministry, what's the argument? Well, it'll help with evangelism. If we're talking about abandoning sexual morality, what's the argument? It'll help with evangelism. It's always that. Well, Peter says the world needs to see a counterplan. The world can't see the light in the total darkness. There has to be a contrast 
And as you live the contrast, the world will be shocked that a contrast exists. Now, Peter is not saying this is the totality of evangelism, but he is talking about evangelism. Now, later, he's even going to say, have, have, be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you. That's verbal. That's telling them the gospel. That's the whole nine yards. But Peter says, live out the holiness of God before the Gentiles, and that will be evangelistic. It's almost like Peter knows his Old Testament. It's almost like Peter has read Deuteronomy, where God spoke through Moses in Moses' second to last sermon and said this, Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? For whatever reason, we may call upon him. And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you this day? That's evangelism language, and it's in Deuteronomy. If you know anything about Patrick of Ireland, uh, there's more to him than four-leaf clovers. He was a remarkable evangelist. He went to Ireland. He brought the gospel there. And the way he did it is profound. Patrick moved into Ireland, where once he had been a slave, and he did not immediately begin preaching in the towns. Rather, what he would do, I mean, he would preach, and there would be some converts, but Patrick would set up a counter-society just outside of a town. He would see Christian people come together, move their hobbles, to live just outside of a pagan town, and that counter-life that was happening in the Christian village would become very apparent to those in the pagan village. They would look across the street and they would say, those guys don't stay drunk all the time. Why don't they stay drunk all the time? They don't beat their wives. What's wrong with them? They don't, uh, they don't cheat. They don't live in bitterness. They've got this whole different thing going on. How is that? And then uh, eventually some people would come across the street because they want to really know what's going on. And, that's when the Christians would say, we'll tell you what's going on, and we'll tell you why it's going on. Come and see what the kingdom of God looks like. And then suddenly some of the people from the pagan side of town are moving to the Christian side of town because that's what they want, and they've received the gospel. And slowly the town was absorbed, and you had a Christian town. Evangelism requires holiness. It requires preaching, but it requires holiness. 
the world is not going to hear there is something more glorious than what you have if we, in fact, are slaves to our inner depravities and we don't look any different than the world. And so the next time you hear a false teacher say, look, you just have to be ungodly because that's the way you reach the world, realize that's gaslighting. The Bible says they'll see you, they'll speak bad about you. Now, Peter said that, that they will speak bad about you, but they will see your good deeds and they will glorify God on the day he comes. But don't let sin crouch at the door and absorb you and kill you because that's what it wants to do.